you're listening to the 21st Century Change Agent Show. This podcast is for those who are always looking for ways to grow as a person and as a leader. On this show, you'll find no ordinary conversations, as I will be speaking with unique people who are already rewriting the narrative. My name is Barbara Ziga, and I help companies to achieve more by putting their people first. Head to Lakehouse Consulting website to find out more and to subscribe to a bite-sized, hand-picked newsletter from me. Thank you for tuning in and get ready to receive your weekly dose of inspiration. Hello, my dear change agents. Great to have you all back here. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but this is the final guest episode for season one. It really is a bittersweet feeling, I must say. However, I'm not going anywhere, so please subscribe to my newsletter so you are up to date with my movements and the next things that I have in the bag for you. As always, those details are in show notes. But today's show, this episode is the celebration of this whole season. And it is a celebration by bringing all of those intersections and levels and layers that make us, that we have been dissecting and digging deep into throughout the season, together. 2020 has been a year of finally giving DNI conversations the airtime they deserve. However, we can't always wait for a crisis before engaging in these conversations. So before we see any progress, we need to come to terms with how we got here in the first place. We need to understand the ineffectiveness of one-off initiatives such as hiring a head of DNI and expecting them to sort all of our problems out or implementing a standalone unconscious bias training. So what will it take for us to get where we need to go? For that, I invited two exceptional guests to join me today, Stacey Gordon and Dr. Shelton Good. Stacey is the founder and chief diversity strategist at Rework Work. She's also a highly regarded public speaker, a LinkedIn instructor, and has just written a book called Unbias, which comes out on the 31st of March and is available for pre-order. So I have added a link to it in the show notes. My second guest, Dr. Shelton Good, is the founder and president of Icarus Consulting. He has held chief diversity officer roles at various companies in the corporate America, has been named the top 10 DNI trailblazers by Forbes, and has written a number of books, of which the latest is due to be published soon. And again, you'll find a link to it in the show notes. All three of us had a very insightful conversation with lots of practical advice. So as always, have your notebook handy. And here's my conversation with Stacey Gordon and Dr. Shelton Good. A very warm welcome, Stacey and Shelton. I'm thrilled to have both of you on the grand finale of the season one of the Change Agent podcast and ultimately talk everything diversity and inclusion. So welcome. Welcome. Good morning. Or hello. Good evening, wherever your audience is listening from today. Yes. Hello. This is this is a special episode in many ways for me um, because over the past four to five months that I have been creating content for this podcast, uh, me and my guests have looked at various sections and layers of our social identities. But what I'm most excited about for this episode is that we get to hone all of that back in again and bring it under this big DEI umbrella and talk holistically about the very bumpy journey thus far and look at the road ahead of us. So I have no doubt that um, we will have a very insightful, incredible conversation today. However, before we go there, I would love to open up the stage uh, for each one of you to tell a little bit about yourself, your current life's work, and what got you into DNI. So yes, my name is Stacey Gordon. I am actually the, the founder of um, a consulting firm called Rework Work. And I have been um, in the diversity, equity, and inclusion um, industry for a number of years, uh, but I actually started off as a recruiter. And so um, recruiting is, you know, I used to work as, you know, I'm using air quotes, right, as a diversity recruiter. Um, But in the work that I did in recruiting, I found that corporations were 
really just not um, as welcoming as they could be to certain sectors of, of the population. And I was having to work harder to uh, to get um, people of color hired, women hired, people with accents. It was like I'd have to jump through all of these hoops. And so back in, uh, gosh, I don't know, it must be like 2015, I transitioned to um, working specifically with companies to help them to identify the barriers to entry and ways to reduce bias in their recruiting process. Um, and so that has actually expanded now to really a holistic view of DEI within the workplace. And um, I'm excited to actually have my new book that has just released uh, called Unbiased, Addressing Unconscious Bias at Work. Congrats on that, Stace. Thank you. Thank you, Shelton. <laughs> That's fabulous. Thank you so much for that. And, and yeah, equally, congratulations on your book. must be super exciting. Yes, the box just arrived uh, on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> Just a couple of days ago. Shelton, the stage is all yours. Um, yeah, so uh, hello, um, Dr. Shelton Good. I am the CEO and president of Icarus Consulting. Um, we are a firm that specializes in help in helping organizations become just a, a little bit more diverse, uh, a little bit more inclusive, and a little bit more equitable every day. And I say that intentionally because it's a journey. It's something you have to work at uh, intentionally every day. Um, prior to um, finding Icarus Consulting, I was actually in corporate America, like Stacy. I was a uh, HR leader, uh, a diversity leader for a, uh, for a number of large um, and global companies. Um, before that, I was teaching in higher ed, so taught higher ed, um, mostly public policy, particularly public policy as it pertains to um, the, the impact on, um, on uh, African-American communities. And then before that, I was in the, in the military with the United States Air Force. So I, I come at this through a lot of different, um, through a lot of different lenses, and I'm happy to be in charge of a, uh, a team of superstars, all of which are HR leaders, diversity leaders, and um, like Stacy, um, she uh, her book has 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 beat mine to the punch. But um, in three weeks, my uh, my latest book, Beyond Inclusion: Reimagining the Future of Work Workers in the Workplace, will drop. So I'm real excited um, about that. Glad to um, have check that off the list, was trying to get that out in time, in February, but the, the the publisher kept saying, well, I, we don't know when that next big thing is going to happen. And, and and here in Atlanta, obviously, we had um, the, the murders of um, in Atlanta metro area, the deaths of eight Asian Americans. And I, I'm glad that I told the publisher, look, we'll never get this book out if we keep waiting for the next thing, because it feels like there's always... Um, something we have not been able to catch our breath for a year, for probably four years, and so um, I'm glad that that's out. And um, unfortunately, there's enough material now already to to start the next one. There's always something. There's always something, and you know, both of you are authors of books. Um, so let's talk about that a little bit. What inspired you to write and what are the key messages or the key sort of feelings you're hoping people would take away from your books? Sure. Thank you. Um, you know, as Shelton said, um, unfortunately, it's not so much that I was inspired as um, prompted to write <laughs> based upon just everything that has been happening uh, in the workplace. And I think, uh, you know, when you look at everything that's happening and especially when it's when it has affected you personally, right, mm -hmm. as as a black woman in the workplace, um, mm -hmm. I remember, gosh, many years ago, I got interviewed by Fox News because I had written an, an article that talked about um, the fact that women need uh, w need help from other women in the workplace, right? And they just thought this was so controversial that I was that I was saying that women should work with with women. And here we are, Women's History Month, you know, yet again, and we're still 
fighting these same tropes and these same issues over and over and over again. And so the book really is just because you get to this place where you get asked the same questions over and over again, and you really want to help address some of these these topics that are coming up, and mm-hmm. you can't get to, you can't understand why we have to keep saying the same thing. It's like why is this not under, understood by some people? So, you know, some of the topics that I address are around why companies can't just start with action, right? Like when George Floyd was murdered um, last year, and even in that, it's so interesting when you hear people say, they'll say, well, when George Floyd was, and there's this hesitation, right? They don't, they don't want to say murdered. They'll sometimes say killed or the George Floyd incident or the, the social unrest that happened, right? There's all these, <laughs> these euphemisms for what happened. And it's like, say the thing, he was murdered. right so it's just frustrating um but everyone wanted to jump into action and so the book really was to to get people to understand that you can't start with action it's a it's a great thing we want action we need action but we need intentional action we need authentic action and Mm -hmm. if you don't stop and take a step back and figure out why you're acting and who you're acting for and what your impact is going to be then any action that you take is not going to be sustainable. It's going to be inauthentic. And in some cases, it's going to do more harm than good. And, and Stacey, wouldn't you agree that, um, you know, when you're in this space, if you have the ability and, and if you're going to be considered a thought leader, you have to, you have to share, you have to share your thoughts. You have to share your feelings. You have to, you have to be vulnerable under, with the understanding that not everybody's going to agree but you have to put yourself out there to, to subject your thoughts to, to to critical review and 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 discussion. It, wouldn't you consider that almost an obligation at at this point? You do. It is, and and you do get the critical review. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. my inbox is filled with, yeah. and, and I gotta say, it's mostly white men who find the need to tell me why my opinion doesn't make sense, why what I've said needs further review, why, you know, how dare I call them a racist? And I'm like, look, dude, I don't even know you. I never called you a racist. But if mm-hmm. you're feeling some kind of way, you might want to go explore that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, <laughs> so I, I'm not even sure how to, how to, how to follow that. I, I'll just say this. Um, talking about taking some arrows my previous book, uh, Winter in America, where I talked about the impact of the, I can't even believe it, the, the 2016 presidential election on diversity in companies and communities in the country. I predicted that it was not going to go well. And I'm sorry to say that, uh, that you know, I looked in the crystal ball and, and the prediction was, was, was far too accurate. Um, you, you could see it coming. And so, I, as I said, um, it's like uh, we we have been uh, not able to catch our breath for four years. So you, it wasn't that it was inspired. It's that these things are happening and not everyone has the ability to to articulate, you know, what's what's going on um, to, to, to give voice to the voiceless and to say, hey, look, um, here's what's happening. And, and, and oh, by the way. Here are some things that we need to. Here are some things that we need to do differently. Um, we are we are coming. We are trying to come out from the shadows of a pandemic that has had health effects, financial effects, emotional effects, uh, psychological effects. Where where we're trying to uh, claw our way through um, this through this menagerie of, of social justice and trying to fight for things that we, should, we were already entitled to, um, both by human rights and civil rights, we, we just were tr- trying to catch a breath over the one, one of the most divisive and contentious elections. And here in Atlanta, uh, the birthplace, um, pretty much given and deferred to as the birthplace of civil rights in the United States, we, we had, you know, eight um, hate crimes that 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 people want to debate whether or not they were hate crimes. So you ask why we write? We have to. We have to. Just like journalists, 
um, have to uh, report. Um, we, we have to capture the facts. We have to capture the truth. But then we have to, based on our experience, offer some solutions, much like a, a medical provider would to an unhealthy patient. So um, I'm glad to, to know that there's people out there like Stacy who has the courage and, and is brave enough to, to state the truth and but to also put forward some solutions. And thank you, thank you both for those um, sort of bit of intros into the motivations behind your work, but also um, setting the scene for today's conversation. Um, and what I what I'll also do is add a links to both of your books in the in the show notes as well, so people can um, find and pre order or order your books as well, because I think um, there are for sure very important messages to read to hear uh, because often we just get carried away by, by whatever the flavor of the month is whatever media feeds us without even um without even assessing the source of the material the motivation why something has been put out there the work that you know you Shelton and you Stacey put out there is considered it's researched it's personal it's holistic and it needs to be heard read and understood um, so thank you so much for that. Mm. And and obviously there is so much knowledge and passion mm. in both of you, some very, very personal passion. And one of the things I want to set the scene with today is that both of you have been engaged in DNI work and have been chief diversity officers well before it was the flavor of the month, again to use the same phrase. And so I'm sure you both have seen it all. And you probably have got a thing or two to say about our current state of diversity and inclusion. So perhaps that's a sort of a good place to start. So how would you describe the current landscape of diversity and inclusion in today's workplace? And do you feel that there is more of a conscious effort from company leaders to drive change and create real positive impact? Stacey, I'm going to let you take that one first. <laughs> I was going to let you go. I was like, well, I've, I've been going uh, well, first uh, time, but um... <laughs> uh, I'm afraid if I start, uh, I'll take up too much air time. I'm going to let you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, uh, it's it's an interesting place. Again, it's, it's similar to what I said before, that we are in a place where you have to get over the the need and the, the, the frustration that we have to do this in the first place, right? Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. you wake up in the morning and sometimes you go, really? I have to like spell this out for you? I have to tell this to you? Why don't you get this? But then I also, sometimes in talking to, to leaders, you know, I sit with them, I talk with them, and I realize they don't. They don't get it. And I can't be word I want to say like I can't be mad right at somebody who just doesn't know right you can be mad at people who are intentionally obtuse or people who know but are intentionally doing the opposite but there truly are a sect of people who don't know because they've never had to right like that's literally what what we talk about when we talk about white privilege and people people hate that phrase right they're like oh what is this and it's like you have to understand, though, it, it's a state of mind where when you wake up and you walk into the world and you just know that you are going to be you know, unconditionally accepted, you can do what you want, you can go where you want, it is expected that you should be in the room, you can't understand how somebody else doesn't have that same feeling, right? You, you just, you, it just makes no sense to you. It does not compute. And so we literally are having to help people like rewire the way they think and retrain the, you know, and help them with empathy to, to open their minds and look around and see and say, look, not everyone has it the same way that you do. Right. right? And so that's literally what we're having to do day after day with right. some people. And it's exhausting. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I, I'm going to, let me see if I can, uh, sometimes it's better just to tell a story. Sometimes it's better just to tell a story. I, I talk to CEOs and board chairs every day, every day, and they think they, they call, they call, they say, "Is that the good? I need help. 
you know, and, and they'll tell you about some, some, something is going on. And you say, okay, everybody take a breath. And let, let's just see if we understand what the reality is. You have a company that is, let's say a for-profit company, and you have a fiduciary responsibility to your shareholders to, 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 to make them some money by selling a product or providing a service. And, and you need people to do that, right? Everybody says, yeah, okay. And then you give them a story that says, if you want maximum productivity out of people, suppose I told you that you have an employee, and I'm not going to tell you any demographics about the employee, any employee that comes to work and says, wow, they look around and they say, and, and, and I'm not going to even use, because people don't think, don't think about diversity, inclusion, and equity. They, they're thinking about their life. They come to the company, they look around, they see different people, different backgrounds, different ages, whatever. And, um, and they say, wow, you know, this seems like an interesting company. And then they, as they go through their day, again, this is just a fictitious story, a day in the life of a, an employee. They go through their life and it's like, wow, um, it's a lot of interesting people here, but I feel funny. You know, I'm, I feel like I, I don't really belong. And they're distracted. So they're supposed to be really productive and engaged, but they're totally distracted because they're trying to figure out the water they're in. It's like, well, everybody has on the same uniform. And, you know, we're all supposed to be on the same team, but I don't feel, you know, like I, like I belong. And then someone, someone figuratively says, oh, yeah, this is how things work around here. And then they says, oh, OK. So they, they, they say, if this are, these are the rules. They look up. They don't see anybody that looks like them in supervision and leadership. So they says, wow, I wonder if I could, if this is a place I can stay and be successful. And then they, they, they. They see people getting promoted and getting different opportunities. And they look in this fictitious book and it says, oh, yeah, in order to be promoted or be advanced, this is how things are supposed to work. And they says, oh, but this person over here didn't have to do that. And this person over here didn't have to do that. But so how can we have these rules? But they, they don't apply to everybody. It seems like there are certain rules for some people, certain rules for somebody else. And, and again, they haven't produced one ounce of work because they're so busy trying to trying to swim through the stream that it's like, and then they go home at the end of the day and it's like, wow, I wonder if I want to go back there tomorrow. And 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 I talk to the leaders, I give them this fictitious story of a day in the life. They're like, no, we're a good company. That's not the way it is for our employees. We give them benefits and we make sure the rules are applied to everybody and we treat everybody fair and we treat everybody equitable. And, and and we don't we don't see color and we, you know and then I say okay let's go to day two the employee comes back and, and it's like and it's the same thing every day and and I says and they and they, and the whole time they're debating and I'm getting to the punchline here the whole time they're debating they never no one ever gets it they never stop to say wow Dr. Good about day three we paid that person three days they haven't produced anything. That can't be in the best interest of the company. What do we need to do better so that that person can do their very best work on behalf of our shareholders and customers and everybody can benefit from this enterprise we call a company? They never stop to ask that. They are constantly on a defensive. Our values say this. Our HR policies say this. We have a chief diversity officer and they make, they don't get it. That's what Stacy is trying to say. They don't get it. It's only until a crisis happens, and then they call Stacy or they call me, and we mm -hmm. have to. And we first have to help them understand. <laughs> you are managing this company based on your good intentions. You are not even stopping to think about the impact of of your actions, whether they're intentional or unintentional. The the the, the impact of those actions on people that you're counting on. To help this company be successful. It's it's almost funny. I don't know how companies are successful, frankly, um, given the fact that, and I'm a, oh, by the way, no, no decided to say anything about COVID, George Floyd. That's just a normal, everyday person. I didn't make the person black. I didn't make them a woman. By the way, that that's the case for, I would say, eight out of 10 employees. So that's, that's why, that's, that's when we get the call that says help. 
Does that make any sense? Absolutely. And it's like, um, and it's like, uh, it's like reading George or- Orwell's Animal Farm again, isn't it? It's yes. like, you know, some are, some, some animals are more equal than others. Let's just sort of leave it as that, right? Well, you know, it's interesting too, as you say, you know, uh, we talk about examples and, and people don't get how, um, how it feels to be completely just out of place sometimes. And I'll, I'll give you an example because the other, well, I shouldn't say the other day, but I went, so I live in Los Angeles, right? And um, I've lived in, I was actually born in London, right? So I've always lived in places where I've been kind of like the odd person out. I grew up in London. I was like always one of the like two black people in my school. And then I moved um, from London to Brooklyn, New York, where I was then a black person who looked like everybody else and people thought I was the same until I opened my mouth and I had a British accent, right? So then I stood out there too. So I've always like stood out wherever I am. And recently I took a trip back to the East Coast because now, like I said, I live in Los Angeles and I was in Maryland, um, just outside of Washington, D.C. And I spent about a week there. I was actually there for a diversity conference pre-COVID And I just felt, while I was there, I felt so calm. I felt so at peace. And I couldn't figure out what it was. I figured it was just because, you know, I'm kind of on vacation. I'm away from the kids. I'm enjoying some time. And when I came back home, I felt really out of sorts. I felt Mm -hmm. antsy. I felt just like something just fell off and I could not figure out what it was. And it wasn't until a couple of weeks later that I said, oh my God, I know what it is. I felt like I finally belonged when I was in Maryland because mm-hmm. I was walking around an area where I didn't look out of place. Everyone looked like me, black people everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. And well-to-do black people, right? I would walk into a store. I didn't get stared at. I didn't look like I didn't belong there. If I went into an expensive store, nobody looked at me strangely, like I maybe I couldn't afford the items, right? Like it just, I was just going about my day. I went into a restaurant and I got seated and there was no, you know, side eye or questions or anything. It was just, I just got to be me in a space. And when I got back to Los Angeles, that feeling started again. And I realized, oh my goodness, all this time I live with this every single day. And I didn't realize it until I was no longer in that situation. Stacey, um, haven't you, ha- have you found that since the deaths of Brianna, George, Ahmad, um, Mr. Blake, and, and countless others, that people are listening now? Um, do you find that the people are less I can't say less in denial, less denial, but people are at least listening more than they were maybe before. What's What's been your experience? I think they are. And I think it's not just those murders, right? I think it's also, it's a, it's a, um, so many things are coming together, converging um, to where some things cannot be ignored, right? So if you take all of those murders and then you add it on top of the, um, the way that people were treated during the pandemic, right? We also saw a lot of inequality. And I I think back to, there was a picture that went viral of two little girls who were sitting outside of a, it wasn't a McDonald's, it might've been a Chipotle or something, right? They were trying to get um, Wi-Fi so that they could do their schoolwork in the beginning of the pandemic when people still didn't know what the heck was going on. Might've been like April, right, of 2020. And so we also highlighted the injustices when yeah. you think about all of these individuals who couldn't get equal access to Wi-Fi so they could go to school, couldn't get equal access to the things that they needed. When we look at and we realize that the number of students who were going to be so behind because of their inability to get that access, we, we have no idea how we're going to fix that, right? How we're going to deal with that issue. So when you add that to the murders, and then you also add the fact that um, we had all of this political divide, you mm-hmm. know, um, I was jokingly saying with my husband the other day um, that we had a dictator in power, right? Because when uh, Trump came into office, we protested. And when he left, we celebrated. And it was like watching, <laughs> you know, the rise and fall of a dictator, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so when you take all of those things, when you look at what happened in the Capitol on, on January 6th, and you take all of that together, people can't ignore it because they're seeing it in their face from so many different angles. And they're finally going, oh, my goodness, I think we have a problem. Yeah, you're, I, I, I found that, uh, and yeah, you're right, that, that intersectionality of all those things. Um, I have found people willing to listen. And what I've been advising is for them to open themselves up to more voices and, and to listen to understand and not listen to fix. If you think about the MBTI profile of the, 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 the typical Fortune 150 CEO, he or she is an ENTJ. It means they, they see a problem, they fix it. They see a problem, they fix it. And, and what I have been asking them to do is to listen. Just listen to, to learn. And if in listening you discover that there's some things that need to be addressed, then, then prioritize and, and, and identify what the one or two things that will really make a difference. And then, um, you know, identify a, a top performer or high potential and, and let he or she tackle the problem. You need to spend most of this time learning and, and absolutely um, try, you know, trying to close the gap between your understanding of how the organization, how you think the organization runs and how the organization actually um, runs. I, I have a, a quick example, uh, talking to a CEO and um, was preparing him for, it was the, I always, before engaging with a client, uh, we, I always talk to the CEO first, ask him or her, what is it that you want to, us to do? Why do you want us to do it now? Uh, what does success look like? And, and why is this personally important to you? And I was talking to this one CEO and he says, well, Doc, while I got you, can, can you coach me on something real quick? I says, of course. He says, I've got a, I've got a vice president um, of, of sales who's not cutting it. I says, okay. He says, but um, I don't know how to tell her that, that you know, she, she's falling short. I says, what do you mean? Well, well, and he started humming. I says, no, come on. This is one-on-one. -on -one. Nobody else is in the room or in the Zoom space. He says, well, she's, she's, she's an African-American female, and I don't want to appear that I'm picking on her because of her race. And I says, let me make sure I got this right. You have a, you have a, an a direct report who's not performing and you are uh, afraid of doing your job, which is to give her feedback so that she can perform better on behalf of your shareholders and customers. I'm like, did I got that? He said, well, 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 I says, no, no, no. That's what it sounds like to me, that, that this is you not wanting to do your job. The fact that she is black ha has nothing to do with it. The fact that you are afraid that she's going to perceive that you're picking on her and pointing out her flaws or performance gaps because she's black. That's your issue. See, in his mind, he had made that her issue. I said, you asked me to coach you. If you asked for me to coach you, then, then you have to listen. This is your issue. If she was white, what would you do? If she was Martian, what would you do? These are the things. And, and he says, my gosh, I don't believe this. You know, I've, I've, cre I've actually created... A more of a problem than actually exists. And so those are the sorts of gaps in realities that, that I'm seeing with senior leaders who get paid six, seven figures to run companies and, and, the, and the, the, the actual company and the employees who sometimes make less than $15 an hour um, that are actually working and performing. So, right. Well, and the, the interesting part about that is that if you think through the, some of the reason, and I'm making an assumption here, right? <clears throat> but some of the reason that he may be thinking that that person feels like they might be picked on is because they were, he already knows that there are inequities in their workplace. And so by saying something, it, it, it causes or sparks the opportunity for somebody to speak up and to identify those inequities. And he doesn't want to have to deal with that, right? So if you're feeling that as a leader, 
it means you have some inequities in your workplace that you need to go identify and fix. 100%. 100%. And people are also, um, they're afraid of shame. Because what we often also see is um, when people have got the right intentions, but they are, they lack awareness, let's put it that way, they're a little bit tone deaf, and they go out and they say something that is completely, obviously, you know, wiped off across social media, and they get fired. And the thing is that what we, you know, often see is that instead of potentially, and I would love to get your thoughts on this, and instead of, you know, firing these people, we should be coaching them. We should, you know, allow them to fail and say, let me coach you. But because I've coached you, my expectation and standard for you have been rise now. So you can't make that mistake ever again. Now, you know, we don't see this, you know, often enough. And and of course, you know, people have had hundreds of years of getting this right and going out there and proactively finding the information. You know, we live in a digital age where everything is at our fingertips. But reality is not that, you know, we live in a reality. It doesn't happen. Even when you dish this information out to people on a silver plate, they don't eat it, you know. And yeah, and then and hence obviously there is this culture. So so now you've got a lot of leaders who completely avoid speaking about it and engaging in these in these conversations because they are afraid. And they're afraid exactly for what Stacey said, because they know they are in inequities in their organization, in their community, in the system. Um, so would love to get, you know, some of your thoughts on, on sort of this sort of shame versus guilt and obviously this sort of culture that we have within um, our organizations and communities as well, that we are not creating safe spaces for people to fail and get better. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. Um, I, I like this. One of my favorite is, um, what is, I, can't, I lost my train of thought, but, but again, use, use, use failures or near misses as an opportunity to, to learn. Um, I would say, uh, I'd like to get Stacy's thoughts on this. I, I think one of the biggest um, failures of organizations is they don't let people make a mistake and move on. Uh, I, in fact, in some companies, in most companies, I would say that I, most of my clients, um, I would say they're, in their cultures, when people make a mistake, it's often used, it's often brought up over and over and over again as the example of not what to do, not as, hey, here's here's something that happened. Here's what we learned from it, and here's how we were able to be better as a result. Stacy, what's been your experience? I'd say it's twofold, right? There, there's two things, and we seem to have forgotten that the word leader actually means something. And so when you step into a leadership position, you are paid more money for a reason. There is more expected of you for a reason. And so there are um, things that you are supposed to be able to do, right? So yeah, you're run-of-the-mill employee. They mess up. They they need space uh, to be coached. At a higher level, you were supposed to have gotten there already. You were supposed to have done those things. You were supposed to know better, be better, and be the example. So yes, we need to give grace. I do agree that there needs to be some more grace given. We need more psychological safety in workplaces. Um, but I, I do caution that you know people are tired, right? It's like when you step up and you are the you know the CEO saying. Uh, excuse my, my my language, but just ask backward things, right? <laughs> it's like, at some point we have to say, no, Mr. CEO, you are the example for this entire organization. You lead this. And so if you believe that, you can't be here. So there's two things that I think of. And one is um, when we go in to do this work, at some point we have to change the people, right? The goal is to change behaviors. I can't change mindsets, I can't change beliefs, but I can change behaviors. And if we don't change the behaviors, then you know, at some point we have to change the people, people. meaning get rid of them. <laughs> They've gotta go because you've yeah. gotta create a culture. And if you don't wanna align with that culture that we are trying to create, then you don't belong here. The second thing is as a leader of an organization, your values should align with your company values. Because again, when you go out, you shouldn't have to be saying something 
um, that you don't agree with. You know, I wouldn't be the CEO of a tobacco company because they don't align with my values, <laughs> right? So if you don't align with the values, you shouldn't be there. Um, and so all these individuals who end up speaking out of turn and saying things that, you know, and then they end up, end up getting fired. It's like, well, then you had a CEO who shouldn't have been there in the first place because they didn't align with the values. So they needed to be fired. Mm -hmm. Right. To create space, to create space for better. Absolutely. <laughs> and while we are, while we are talking about it, if, you know, it feels like at the moment we are in this window dressing stage. Um, when it comes to sort of, uh, you know, diversity and inclusion. However, soon we will have to start uh, start talking about accountability, about consequences, about promotions, retention, and what it means to prioritise things, to make sure we contribute to better, not only our organisation, but the whole industry, you know, whole ecosystems where we operate in. So my question is, and I probably have got a couple here, but first and foremost, how do we mainstream diversity and inclusion work so it doesn't so it doesn't feel like another thing I need to think about? And and a follow-up question to that probably would be, which I can you know ask again, how can companies shift their culture to strike mm. a balance between the corporation's values and an individual's belief system? Mm. And how can a company measure if that has been successful? Yeah, I mean, those are, those are some big, big questions, right, that we're sort of all struggling with. Um, yeah. I, I think that first part, though, is, so I, I think that the idea is it shouldn't be an initiative, right? That is one of the big things we talk about. It's like, it's not something separate. You should not be separating. It's why in the very beginning I said, you know, I used air quotes when I said diversity recruiter. Mm -hmm. The number one thing that I tell talent acquisition teams when they come in and ask me to do, um, you know, education and training for, for their TA teams is diversity recruiting is not a thing, right? Diversity recruiting is just good recruiting. If you do your job correctly, diversity is embedded in it. So mm -hmm. that's how we make it mainstream. We have to go back and just reevaluate what are the conditions and the criteria for success, right? right. What are the expectations right. that we are um, giving people and how do we make sure, you know, that's why I know some of these companies are now finally starting to say, yeah, we need to hold back, um, you know, uh, CEO compensation or executive compensation if we're not hitting our diversity metrics. And also part of that, though, is putting in place expectations and goals that are actually achievable and that make sense and that are aligned with something that, um, you know, really works for the company and not just some pie in the sky number that they've just pulled out of the air. Yeah, yeah, um, man, th that first one, um, that's probably my, my sweet spot. I mean, because um, I'm a student of, of Dr. Roosevelt Thomas, the person given the, the lion's share of credit for having founded the field of diversity. And if he was alive today, he would remind us that wasn't his intent. Um, he simply was trying to explain to companies that if you're going to be successful, coming on the heels of the civil rights legislation, you have got to prepare your organization to, 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 to optimize and leverage all of this talent that's going to be coming into your companies as a result of um, the, the, the laws that expanded um, opportunity, equal opportunity. That's all he ever said was that if you're going to be, if you want to be successful, you have got to realize you're going to have all this talent come in and they're going to bring different perspectives. They're going to be bringing different experiences. And in order to get the most out of them, you can't, you can't just keep doing things the way you've always been doing it. Um, he never, never meant it to be something different. It's been made into something separate. It's been made into something different. But, but Stacy said it said it best. It's what's the criteria for success? And and if that is making sure that all of the people you have in your organization and, and optimizing and leveraging all of their talents uh, for the benefit of the employees, the suppliers, communities, customers, shareholders, then you have to be intentional about it. You can't just assume that everybody's just going to um, come together and just just work to and and produce um, to the to the to their maximum ability. Managers are going to have to manage 
uh, the diversity that they have on their teams by making sure everyone on the team understands their role and, and is performing it, is giving the tools, the resources, uh, is, is, and that everyone on the team is treated with respect and dignity, um, and that all the rules are applied equitably. Um, that he just said you have to be intentional about it. So, so diversity and inclusion, that's not something separate. It's just that you have to be intentional if you want to get certain certain outcomes. So I, 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 I don't know how we got here where, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, all these years later, it's still seen as by most people as some special initiative that's going to benefit women and people of color at the expense of white males. Diversity and inclusion has never been about that. Um, it was never supposed to be about that. And so I'm going to stop there because, again, this is the thing that that drives me crazy. It drives me crazy. And you're absolutely right. You know, it's not a zero-sum game. You know, my inclusion doesn't mean your exclusion. It's none of those things. And, again, talking about project, you know, um, when often you get, I'm a DNI project manager what does that even mean so are Nothing. you telling me that there's no such thing right because dni doesn't have an end date it's a journey that you embark on every single day for the rest of your life <laughs> if you're serious about it you embark on it because you 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 can't be anti-racist today and not an anti-racist tomorrow i mean that, that that's not diversity and inclusion it's not you know but it's not none of the things that we're talking about Right. Part of the problem, though, is is the, the, the training, right? Lack of education. So this is looked at as another, you know, again, I'm using air quotes, training initiative, right? And what we find is that you go into companies and they're not even doing the bare minimum of professional development, right? Again, I go back to I'm picking on leaders, but it's like leaders don't even know how to lead. They're not given the coaching and the education and the development that they actually need. So how on earth do we expect them to understand these concepts that we're trying to, to add on? These are a little bit more advanced concepts when we can't get them to understand just general principles of managing an employee in the workplace. That's so true. And and the thing is that we also we need to normalize these concepts because even in training sense, we still call it inclusive management. It's management. <laughs> and this is where we are trying to and this is where we are through our language separating it from everything else. So it's management training and then you're going to embark on inclusive management training so it is another thing that we need to think about so we need to start normalizing these things and not create them as a separate piece and intervene in everything that we do and there won't be a separate piece anymore now 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 i will this is for fear of contrast sounds like i'm contradicting what i what i just said you know your second question was about culture there are companies that that say they want to change but they really don't want to change I was golfing with, uh, again, uh, a client that, uh, well, we, we wasn't a client at the time. I was trying to look, you know, win them as a client. And, and we were on the 16th hole, and I was thinking whether or not I should let the person win the putt so that I can get their business. And then the, the CEO turns to me and he says, I, I need you. You know, I really need somebody to help me change. And so I says, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm going to. I'm probably not going to win this business, so I'm just going to have to tell this person like it is. I says, you don't want to change. You don't want to change. He says, yes, Shelton, yes, I do. I says, no, you don't. He says, yes, I do. I says, okay, let me give you an example. When we, uh, the, the day is Saturday, come Monday, your your college roommate's going to call you, and he's going to say, hey, I'm going to call him John. Hey, John, uh, you know that uh, my son's about to graduate from Princeton. I think he'd make a good uh, real estate director working at your company. And, and you're going to tell your college roommate, sure, send them over to the office. I'll talk to him. You know, I'll tell him how things work here and blah, 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 blah. I says, in a month or so, you're going to hire him, probably without even sending him through the normal interview process. And you're going to parachute your college roommate's son in at a director level, making over $500,000 a year. Meanwhile, and you're going to have, let's call her, Pam, you're going to have Pam, an African-American female who's been at your firm as a, as a, as a senior 
manager who's been trying to get a director job and you told her you're going to get she's next in line, you're going to have her train your college roommate's son who you just parachuted in to be her boss. Now, tell me you're going, you want to change that if you really want to change. You don't. Some companies don't want to change their culture and their values because it works for them and the people that look like them. Um, and, and, and to suggest that, you know, when we when they call Stacy and myself, say we want to change, we are the ones that have to tell them, no, if you want to change, then tell your college roommate, tell his son to apply online. When an opening comes up that meets with his or her qualification, have them go through the process. He's going to probably have to be interviewed five or six times. And if he gets the job, he may have to start working for Pam, who's my senior manager, next in line to be director because she's real good. And 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 and, and I looked at his face, and uh, I'm not sure if he was more angry by what I told him or by the fact that I went on and made my putt and won the golf game. But But companies say they want to change. But some companies really don't want to change their culture because it works. It works for them. It works for their vendors, their customers, their 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 employees, their family members. It works for them. So so when I come along and say you got to change that, all of a sudden DNI sounds like an initiative designed to benefit women and people of color at the expense of white males. They don't see that what we're trying to do is make it equitable for everybody. You see what I'm getting at? And so sometimes some companies say, thank you, Dr. Good, but we're not going to hire Icarus and Consulting House. It's fine. That's fine with me because that, you know, that's not every dollar is a good dollar. You know, so I'm sure Stacy feels the same. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Um, you know, and it's, it's so funny that you say that because it's the same with the, uh, like you said, talent acquisition, it's, it is a love of mine. I like to, to talk to individuals there because they get the brunt of it, right? In, the, in those kinds of companies, they say, oh, it's talent acquisition's fault. It's the recruiter's fault. They can't find diverse candidates, right? And I'm like, no, it's not their fault, right? So I, I remember being in a, again, pre-COVID, being in a, a conference room with the CEO and all the C-suite individuals, right, and all the heads of the department. And we're having this conversation and this comes up and somebody says, yeah, well, you know, the recruiters need to, to do their job. I said, yeah, you know what? You're absolutely right. They do. I said, and <laughs> who do the recruiters, uh, who are they hiring for, right? What are, they, what are they working towards? They're working towards filling positions for the individuals in this room, right? And so I went through the whole thing and, I, and we go back and forth and I finally said, okay, yeah, we got it. The recruiters, they're going to get handled. HR is here. The head of TA is here. They got that. They're handling it. They're working on a process. I said, but what about the rest of you? And they looked at me like, well, what do you mean us? I said, well, how are you working with your hiring managers? Because they have to partner with the recruiters and they're the ones that do the hiring. And so the CEO looked at me and he was like, well, well, of course, you know, the heads of the departments have to manage that. I said, right. So you mean the people in this room? And he looked at me like the light bulb came on, like, oh, we have to do work too. Like, yes, <laughs> yes. Now you see, uh -huh, you get it? Okay. <laughs> I was like, stop scapegoating your recruiters because they are hiring for the people in this room. <laughs> But this is really interesting that you mentioned this, and obviously I've been in recruitment for years as well. And the thing is um, about recruiting, and, and you know maybe you've seen it differently, but when it comes to diversity and inclusion, it's a diversity and inclusions problem. It's you know you don't see a statement or I don't know a bullet point on a on a job description stating that you also contribute it's your responsibility and you will be kept accountable for contributing to our organization's diversity and inclusion and you don't get that it's not mainstream and this is another problem because then you think about i'm in sales or i'm in product development why do why should i care about it well of course you should you are creating products for everyone you are a leader of your team you know same with same with obviously hr that goes without saying same with finance you know same procurement supply chain great example you know who are you buying from 
but but this statement i at least in my career have not seen it enough or at all really in job descriptions unless they are diversity and inclu- chief diversity and inclusion officers yes chief diversity officers who are going to you know somehow change the entire culture of the organization by themselves you know we don't expect the cfo of the organization to be completely responsible for all the financials right and to be the one that brings in all the dollars right so why do we expect the chief diversity officer to be the person who's going to be responsible for all of the diversity throughout the entire organization it makes absolutely no, no. sense yeah <laughs> And even more so, you know, it's such a, it's such an emotionally charged role to perform on day to day basis. Well, first and foremost, because you live it every day as a as a citizen of the world, but also you are the one who have to embark on it on in a professional and corporate setting as well. It is a it is a really tough job to do, and you don't get remunerated for it. You don't get um, recognized for it. Nor you have the same say it say in on a board as your CFO would do, or as your chief marketing officer would do. So, so the role is still not respected enough, unfortunately, from from you know what I see around. And often this role is a bit of a sort of an odd one where it's very um, external facing. It's not respected because it's not properly defined. Shelton mentioned role clarity earlier, right? Um, I've seen some doozies of, of uh, chief diversity officer descriptions, right, where it's like they're going to be responsible for marketing. They're going to be responsible for external facing, internal facing, HR responsibilities, overseeing t- uh, talent acquisition. It's like that's like eight jobs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How do you mm-hmm. expect this person to be successful? Mm-hmm. And so I had actually developed a, a, a questionnaire for chief diversity officers. I was like, if you're gonna go into a job before you accept this job, you need to ask, who am I reporting to? What are my resources gonna be? How large is my team gonna be? Oh, I'm not gonna have a team? All right, thank you, I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) She's she's, she's right. You know, the the work, I I just call it the work. The work is exhaustive. And the epiphany I had leaving corporate starting my own firm was that I thought it was going to be less exhaustive. It's not. It is it is exhausting work. And um, I thought that I could make some of that exhaustion go away with an invoice. It doesn't. The work is just exhaustive uh, work. And it's, it's all, I feel almost like um, sometimes there are some days I feel like Bill Murray in the movie Groundhog Day. You know, it's just like, Oh, didn't I just had this conversation yesterday? It's like no, it's, but it's uh, but it's 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 important work. It's it important. is. You're right, and it absolutely is. And and you know, while diversity and inclusion movement or work has made some gains in past few years, it all ha- also has suffered some real severe setbacks. So how do we? reimagine the workplace beyond all of the crises we are dealing with right now and what does the world beyond this actually looks and feels like i'm hoping to, for, for two things um i again when, when i say beyond inclusion i i think we've got to give us i think we have to give additional attention to equity i think that the COVID exposed um, and, um, and brought to greater light the, the disparities and inequities that have always been there. I love Stacy's example about the, about the two little girls trying to have to sit outside of a restaurant to, to take advantage of their Wi-Fi to do their, their schoolwork. What she didn't say was there's someone else who was in a home that probably had access to broadband, high speed, and, 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 and it may not have been because of the family situation, it could be because of the geographical location. Here in Georgia, we, we discovered that at least 32% of school-aged children do not have access to um, broadband, and, and 50% of that is due to the areas they, they live in. They don't have reliable broadband. The other thing was you know, uh, equity, uh, another example. Um, I had a number of clients who, in an attempt to keep the doors open, were, had several downsizings. 
uh, I'm sorry, you had, had had several downsizings. And then when they got to the point where they couldn't do that anymore, they wanted to, you know, reduce pay. And I remember one particular company wanted to have across the board, you know, 20% pay cut. And I said, that's not equitable. The CEO didn't get it. I says, you know, to make the long story short, I says, you know, top leadership can probably afford to take 20, but a person that's a customer service rep that's on the phone nine hours a day, that's making less than $15 an hour, can't afford $20. So why don't you guys take the full 20 and then and then have the next level down, your direct reports maybe take 15, have those direct reports take 10 and spare your your hourly workers. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. They didn't really. And then they had, once they ran the numbers, they found that they could get to the same concept, the same outcome, but they had to take a more equitable approach. Um, that's what I'm hoping. That's that's what I'm hoping is on the other side of the darkness that we're trying to emerge from. Stace, what do you think? I think for me, I look at um, to get to the other side, we still have to go through, right? There's still a lot of going through. Mm. And even just a couple of months ago, you know, I was talking to a number of DEI practitioners and we were saying, like, we're still concerned that things might revert back to, you know, pre-pandemic. Because if you really think about pre-pandemic, pre-George Floyd, nobody was talking about DNI the way they are now, right? It was not that high of a priority. And so we were concerned. We were going, hmm, what, what if this changes, right? What if we revert back? So part of the, 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 I think, the next five to 10 years is really just pushing this and helping us not to revert back to where it's not a focus, right? And then once we can get through that, then we'll get to a place where we start to see some change. But I think right now, I, I am optimistic that we're going to continue in this place of what seems harsh, which seems really tough to be in, but it's, it is a place of change. Change shakes things up. And what we're seeing is because there's such a, a focus on it, that there are people who are being made uncomfortable. And when they're made uncomfortable, they are going out and they are doing crazy things and they are shooting people and they are, they are committing crimes and they are sending death threats. You know, I've got people on, if you think about outspoken individuals on social media who are talking about this, they're getting death threats, right? They're getting people sending them all kinds of nasty and vile messages. And that I, I think is because we're at a place where we have shaken it up and people are uncomfortable. So we have to sit in this discomfort for a little bit longer. Um, and I quoted this in my book, but I think it was Winston Churchill who said, you know, when you're going through hell, keep going. <laughs> and I think we are right at the beginning of hell. <laughs> so we, I think we have some turbulent times ahead. That's beautifully said, and I and I totally agree with it. And I've got um, my my good friend of mine, Lisa May Bronson. She used this amazing analogy about you know that we have had the dial to the extreme one end of this scale for a long time. Let's put it that way. And when you re and it's physics, right? When you release that dial, it naturally goes to the very far end to the other side, and then it goes back again and the back again, and it takes time until it neutralizes and finds a neutral state. And you're absolutely right. We are at the very, very beginning of it where that dial has just been released or is about to be released. So we have to be ready for all nine circles of Dante's hell, as you mentioned. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I'm glad you mentioned Lisa. I haven't talked to her in a while. Um, uh, I participa participated in a couple of the, the Wonder Women tech conferences. Um, and I know that, you know, everything that was going on with COVID has been it's been tough. <laughs> It has been tough, but at the same time, uh, you know, we've got a beautiful program planned for this year um, across the world. We, for the first time, also are doing Wonder Women Tech Africa, which will be a celebration of the motherland. Um, it will be absolutely, you know, beautiful. It will be sort of two and a half days of events um, of celebrating local culture, local vibrancy, music, it all. So I, you know, can't wait to be uh, part of that and, and bring it all to all of you. Um, in August this year. 
So I will say a huge thank you to both of you, Shelton and Stacey, for spending your morning um, with me. And, you know, it's been quite interesting to see um, the sun rising up, you know, in the window behind you, Shelton, because when we started, it was done <laughs> there now. So it seems like we've been talking for about 12 hours and we probably <laughs> could go on and on. But genuinely, thank you so much for all of the wisdom and everything that you shared. And I think it's a beautiful conversation um, for everyone, leaders and everyone to listen to, because, you know, what we covered is very topical about where we are. And we talked about real things, but also there's been, you know, a lot of hope about what the future holds as well. Um, and, and but we need to get there. And I mean, we need to get there together somehow. <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, always uh, a pleasure to, to to talk about this stuff, especially with people that I admire, like, uh, like Stacey and didn't mind getting up super early to do it. Yes, thank you, thank you. This was a good opportunity to be able to have the conversation. While some progress has been made, it's undeniable that the industry has taken some steps back. People have become better versed in what's going on and are more willing to speak up. There's also been some demographic representation progress made. However, we need to start having conversations about accountability, consequences, equitable opportunity, and we need to start normalizing inclusion training and call it training and not have it as another thing, but as a fundamental expectation. There's a lot of work for all of us to do, not just us DNI leaders, but all of us, because this work begins within our ecosystems, within your ecosystem. What a beautiful conversation to conclude this season with by bringing all of these conversations from across the season under the same roof. And I would like to thank Dr. Shelton Good and Stacey Gordon for helping me do that. Please head to the show notes where you'll find both of today's guest details and also links to their books. This is not a goodbye in any way as my work and journey in this space continues. So please stay in touch by subscribing to my newsletter as I will have plenty to share with you in the weeks to come. But until then, stay safe, keep learning, exploring and growing. And until next time.